Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's The Wonky Show. The Renters' Reform Bill is back in Parliament, so we're talking about student housing. And there are important new reports into academic research culture and UK students studying abroad. It's all coming up. But um, I do think the UK recommendation that universities really need to engage with this and get stuck into planning arrangements and thinking through the consequences is just completely essential. Welcome to The Wonky Show, your weekly way into this week's higher education news policy analysis. I'm Wonky's Editor-in-Chief, Mark Leach, and joining me for the half-term HE policy chat are three brilliant guests as always. In central London, it's Nicola Dantridge, Professor of Practice in Higher Education Policy at the University of Bristol. Nicola, you're hired for the week, please. Well, I've just been uh, finishing off a piece of work that I've been working on for the last six months or so, which is interviews with vice-chancellors and pro-vice-chancellors about... Um, my theme, the relationship between teaching and research. And it's been absolutely fascinating listening to them, but hearing their views. But writing it up and analysing it has been agonisingly difficult. And this week, I think I'm pretty much there. So I'm feeling quite joyful as a consequence of that. Um, In Egham, it's Andrew Boggs, University Secretary at Royal Holloway, University of London. Andrew, you're hired for the week, please. Um, I I think for me, the the highlight is seeing the number of student events that are taking place, both on our campus and other, other campuses. Um, in relation to the crisis in, in Israel and Gaza, and where they're quite positive events, uh, helping inform student, the student body or raise funds for, for those in crisis. And it, it's a highlight for me in respect to the, where we often see quite negative press around students. It, it reinforces what the positive influence students play on university campuses and, and their com- local communities. And in Oxford, it's Wonky's news editor, Michael Salmon. Michael, you're hired to the week, please. Yeah, it's been a really good parliamentary week this week after, you know, a month or so of not much parliament action. There's been a couple of HE relevant bills going working their way through the Commons and education questions in Westminster, Wales and Scotland has been, you know, fantastic for me. And uh, yeah, you you watch it so no one else has to. <laughs> um, right. Uh, we start the week with student housing. Michael, uh, walk us through it. Yeah. So the the renters reform bill is one of the pieces of legislation very relevant to to higher education and students. It's been back in the Commons this week. On it was um, a second reading on Monday after quite a long gap where it looked like it might possibly drop off the government's legislative radar seeing as this this parliamentary session is about to finish but no they brought it back um, and as we spotted last Friday there's already uh, quite a significant change that's going to be introduced by the government um, very relevant to students um, which is you know um, the, the original idea of this bill it was you know um, it's going to ban no-fault evictions um, and it's going to remove fixed-term tenancies of all kinds um, which you know created a lot of back backlash from sort of landlords, from universities saying that, you know, students, you know, basically by default, they need fixed term tenancies. If you remove that, it's going to completely mess up the student housing market, this sort of yearly cycle we have. And and so the government sort of, you know, acknowledged that and 
and is going to make changes. So there's going to be a special grounds for possession just for the student market um, that will that is intended to sort of make this yearly cycle still work. Um, so it's a bit of a backsliding, and and you know you could frame it as um, sort of response to, to to pressure from landlords and and other sort of stakeholders in the market. But it's still going to improve the rights of student renters if it does continue this way, because they won't be locked into contracts and they'll still get the right to leave if properties are poor quality or you know if circumstances change um you know so so it's, it's an interesting bill that i you know is is relevant to something which is a big big problem at the moment as we have seen from um a report from unipol and happy this is the other sort of accommodation related event of the week which is their sort of student accommodation survey they've looked at 10 major student cities and basically find which you know what i think everyone is very aware of but it's really good to just keep flagging that basically students are spending all their maintenance no loan at least in some cases on, you know on, on their rent um it's it more or less the average rent is now the same as the average maintenance loan and even three quarters of the maximum loan so this whole question of you know wh what students what money they have to survive on how much their parents are really expected to contribute um and just you know how much they're expected to work to pay for their living costs is has been back in the news right and um yeah paul blomfield was was interesting in, in the debate he's the mp mp for uh, sheffield central i think we've we've got a clip but students aren't homogeneous undergraduates and postgraduates have different attendance requirements there are 30 week programs there are 52 week programs some courses start at different times of the year and have a different cycle there are mature and part-time students some students with families estranged students, international students, graduate apprentices, those who stay on to study or work during vacation while their friends don't, those who want to make their university house a permanent home. And of course, there are many students who live in mixed households with recent graduates or other non-students. And it simply wouldn't work uh, to have people in a mixed household on the shared tenancy, but with different rights. Okay, Nicola. Let's start with the um, with the the Unipol and, and Happy figures. Um, and let's take Bristol as an example. I mean, isn't the basic problem here that, that both universities are recruiting too many students? I think there, clearly there is a, a factor there about the number of students that that are being recruited. I mean, it's interesting. I'm on the board of the University of Glasgow as well as working at Bristol, and there, in discussion with their student representative committee, they agreed to constrain the number of international students that they were recruiting precisely because of the pressures on um, accommodation. And I, th I think that's always a really sort of thoughtful and responsible thing. But of course, you know, there are financial consequences to the universities. So this is not at all straightforward. But um, I do think the UK recommendation that universities really need to engage with this and get stuck into planning arrangements and thinking through the consequences is just completely essential. Mm. If, if I may, Mark, I, I think that that's vital, that, that uh, Nicholas' last point about engaging and working with uh, local communities and local boroughs. Obviously, there's a, there's a broader issue around a, a shortage of affordable housing generally, so not just the affordability and the availability for students, but for the general population. And there, there may be opportunities for um, higher education providers to rather than rather than rushing into trying to generate and create new housing themselves of working with their local communities in helping generate affordable housing that's that's beneficial for the long term not just the students definitely how, how much responsibility do you think it is for, for universities to be doing that kind of stuff 
I think as a as a key player in their local communities, I think universities definitely have a role. But I think there is also a risk of trying to consider this issue in isolation and and not considering it in the broader context. Obviously, there, there's quite a bit of pressure right now, both in terms of international and and domestic undergraduate students. That that domestic undergraduate student demand will be dropping off at some point. Um, at which point, universities don't want to be stuck with what could amount to empty buildings. So th- there's an, a reason to engage with with government and with local boroughs to look at affordable housing as a in the in the round. Mm. There's there's been quite a lot of background noise, hasn't there, about the the renters reform bill, Michael, and the and the impact on the on the student rental market. Um, do you think do you think the, the warnings that will make things worse for landlords kind of real, or is that just is that special pleading? I mean, I I, I think it is a bit that the system is working pretty well for for landlords at the moment, and they don't really want it to change. I mean, I, obviously, that you know, there's not really any sector of the economy that is working fantastically at the moment. There is so much cost pressure on you know housing developers um, in terms of staff, in terms of raw materials. Um, there's lots of problems in the planning system, you know. So it's not it's not like there aren't problems, but I, I you know I think you'd be hard pressed to really make the case that in the last decade it's been a difficult time to be in in property and to be in the student accommodation market and i i do think there's definitely a degree to which this is can we not just have business as usual kind of continue as it is um and you know then if we go back to the pot you know the 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 data from unipol and happy is showing that really we can't we do need to do something um you know as a sector it's become a bit of a truism that you know no no particular department in the government takes responsibility for student housing you know um the leveling up department pass it on to dfe who say you know it's not it's more like local councils it, you know no one's really doing it but it is that is really the case um and yeah whether the renters reform bill is is going to particularly address these problems of cost i you know or, or make it worse i think is one issue but there's also these you know all these problems around student that we see in the papers so much about students in just terrible quality um accommodation but you know and also being sort of ripped off by by you know housing agents or you know signing up for properties that turn out to not be available and you you know, losing their deposits all over the place. Um, so, you know, those problems are important and they do need solving too. Michael's absolutely right about there is profit in this. And I think we need to be clear-eyed about that. But I think we need to look at what happened in Scotland where there are, there are real parallels there. So the 2016 Scottish legislation introduced um, reforms designed to protect tenants. And it, it not exactly the same, but rather similar um, so restricting fixed-term tenancies and reduced means of repossession and so on. And, and what happened there is that the market contracted because even though one may not like the profit motivation amongst rent landlords, um, it, it, it's going to drive their behaviour. And that contraction then led to increased rent. So I, I think even though I agree, Michael, that, that um, there is a, a, there must be a degree of self-interest in their responses. I think we do need to look at the consequences of that and realise that it will impact on students. Because I did skim Hansard and I thought this question of the ombudsman was really exciting. This, I think, could be really um, significant for students. So there, there's a suggestion in, in, in the bill that they're going to create an ombudsman to be able to sort of address problems from tenants. And there is such an imbalance, as Michael described, between the power 
powerlessness of student tenants and landlords. Mm. And I think if we, well, the NUS and student unions, all of us really, could could ensure that that ombudsperson was properly set up, properly funded, given the appropriate powers, most of all responsive to the particular circumstances of students. I think that could be immensely powerful. Yeah, yeah, particularly as RFS has no no role in protecting students in, in housing. Um, no, they don't, and nor should they. I mean, it's not their role. It's not their responsibility. Yeah, yeah, but the ombudsman, the ombudsman, the ombudsman might. Andrew, I mean, there are there, there are obviously potential solutions in the, in the long term, um, but on the on the maintenance issue, you know, even even if loans were to increase, wouldn't we wouldn't we rather the money going on food, study costs, societies, you know, all of that kind of stuff, rather than into the into the pockets of of landlords? In the short term, there needs to be uh, an addressing of maintenance loans. And at least fixing them to uh, inflation and ensuring students have enough to live off of. That point is absolutely correct. But as you suggest, Mark, it really is sort of like passing a, a pail or a bucket to someone who's in a sinking ship. It's going to help them begin to bail the water out, but it's not plugging the hole and not st- not stopping the the, sip, the the ship from sinking. So it, it really needs a, a two pronged approach. And and I I do agree with the points that were raised earlier universities do have a responsibility to bear in this and have and as i say have an opportunity to work with their with their local boroughs with their local communities to try to develop affordable housing for the for the community and, and to help meet that that student demand hmm. right let's see who's been blogging for us this week Hi, I'm Helen Cross and this week on Wonky I've been blogging about the alliances for research collaboration Scotland has a fantastic history of research excellence and a strongly collaborative ethos. But to be successful in the future, we need to harness the strength of university research across Scotland and boost critical mass. That's why we've established the ARCs, Alliances for Research Collaboration. We have four of them in brain health, energy, food and quantum technologies. They focus on national priorities, they span different universities and incorporate different disciplines. They'll build on our culture of collaboration and bring together the best people, no matter where they are in Scotland. They'll also play an important role in developing the next generation of researchers. The ARCs have enormous potential to harness opportunities within this shifting research landscape, and I'm very much looking forward to seeing where the next few years will take us. Okay, there's a big new report into research culture. Andrew, walk us through it. Certainly. Well, the uh, research uh, was published by the University of Bristol uh, this morning, and it's based on a survey of over 400 academic researchers who report that, or at least the research suggests, are demoralized by the research and publication culture in, in the United Kingdom. Um, the, the research suggests that there's concern that there's an over uh, increase or over in, um, interest in positive or flashy results. Um, and furthermore, an overemphasis on researchers' uh, pre-existing publication records leading to power and seniority dis- deciding authorship. Um, and then finally, that the media and, and academic journals themselves are favoring good stories or things that provide an easy narrative in terms of research publications over things that either might be a bit more challenging or, or less conclusive. Um, and to end on a, on a positive note, um, almost 20% of those surveyed say that they feel their career prospects in academic research are very low. 
fascinating. Nicola, this this touches on on some of your research interests, doesn't it? About about the link between re- research and teaching. Does it does it ring true from what you're seeing? Yeah, it, it's a it's a serious and depressing report actually to read. And um, you're right, uh, Mark. It does s- suggest that um, academics are saying they need more time to focus on research and um, have their responsibilities for teaching and administration um, reduced to free up their time. And actually, you're quite, when I read that, I thought that that's exactly what I'm interested in, that if you look at research or indeed teaching in isolation, it sort of skews the institutional response to both teaching and research. And I think there are all sorts of other consequences that will follow on from that. So, I mean, it's not a major point in the, in the report, but it is a significant finding that that's what researchers are wanting to do. And of course, I was thinking, well, what about students? What about teaching? Where does it leave that side of what universities do? So, um, as Andrew said, I think the finding of novelty mattering more than reproducibility is really worrying because that presumably impacts on the um, legitimacy and integrity of the research. So, I I think I, I found it quite worrying, really. Yeah, Michael, it's a, it's a bit, it is a bit worrying, isn't it? I think, I think, I mean, we're trying to find a signal of noise here between the, you know, I guess the the long-standing dissatisfaction there is in academia with the, you know, the the changes that have happened um, in the last couple of decades about measuring research and uh, all of those sorts of things, and you know what, and how incentives are in the system now to behave in such a way that you know might cause might cause real problems as you know as Nicholas said that kind of emphasis on the you know positive or flashy is is you know clearly a you know clearly would be a major problem if that, if 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 work is being skewed in that way but you know where how much how much of this is is the is the kind of consequence of these changes over the last as i say several years and and how much of this is you know just the the weather yeah so there's a, a part of this report is really about publication culture right the sort of publish or perish pressures on researchers to to sort of live or die according to how much that they get out there and also you know to drop stuff that's not going to be impactful or not going to be in high enough ranked journals, um, which is a very long-standing problem. Um, reforms, you know, for, from my sort of limited knowledge, it feels like lots of the reforms around sort of gold open access and stuff just really haven't worked and, have, uh, you know, have not enormously made the made the situation better. This piece of research was funded by Octopus, which is a new sort of JISC and Research England funded alternative publishing platform. Um, you know, what, what for me really stood out, though, was not so much the, you know, the stuff around publication, but the, the things around, the, you know, the cultures within um departments and within institutions around and you know how research is is understood and experienced because that's so that's you know that's so topical at the moment with all this debate flaring up around ref and research culture you know in some ways this is exactly what those who want to reform the ref want to shout from the rooftops and say look a poor research culture actually has an impact on the quality of output around these things nicola said about reproducibility and just you know just sort of quality and whether things are, you know, novel or whether they're significant, um, you know. But there is also, I feel like, a bit of a divergence between the sort of maybe research policy 
approach, which is to say, okay, we need to have, you know, um, more uh, charters or we need institutions to do more sort of institutional level work. And then this report, I think, is very good at saying, okay, actually, what's the experiences of researchers about research culture? Um, you know, this sort of these problems around competition and, and, and sort of workload, which the ref reforms perhaps don't really speak to. One of the things that really spoke to me from uh, from the report, uh, as much as it, of it I could read this morning, um, is the impact on early career researchers and early career academics. Because I, I think their voice and their concerns comes through quite strong, particularly in relation to the power dynamics in in, in publication and, and research. And it echoes research that was published in Canada in March 2023 by the Advisory Panel on the Federal Research Funding Support System, um, which highlighted two particular concerns. Uh, and one was around the whether or not there was sufficient support for early career researchers. And, and this is something that's been repeated over ad nauseum in, in a UK context. The second thing it highlights, though, is the very real threat of brain drain, not in the context that one may have spoken about it in the 90s and early 2000s of brain drain to other countries, but brain drain from the academic or uh, university um, environment to the private sector, which, which raises a couple different questions. One, are, is there sufficient support for early career academics to help keep them in academe and generating uh, publicly funded research? Um, and then the sec, but the second point it does raise, and this is probably more from an educational perspective, speaking to, to Nicola's point, are universities doing enough to prepare PhD candidates and, and research, ma uh, research master's students for a life outside of academia and outside of university? If that is in fact where most of them, or or at least a significant proportion of them, will end up be going. So we've got a piece up um, from from um, Alexandra Freeman, who works at Octopus, and you know there there are lots of interesting things being done around publication, around you know sort of other ways of publishing, ways to sort of speed up the process, make it la less labour intensive for researchers. I mean, for myself, who's published a very small number of articles, you know the the, the process is terrible so often um and you know the feedback you get from peer review and just you know the the, the the you know the problems with that are all very well established and people are trying to do interesting work and i and i i worry that it's it's sort of still very intractable i mean on the research culture question about you know sort of um researchers careers the pressure on them the competition they face i mean you know this i think at the end of the day just goes to funding in a big way you know the the the, the fact that research is just not fully funded by funding councils by the government by by the big research funders i think you know that that at the end of the day is what creates these problems further down the road that you know there's not enough time to do it and people are just always kind of have to kind of squeeze 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 um and you know there there needs to be some point a serious consideration with how much does research cost you know we can't subsidize it with home student teaching fees anymore because they you know they're, they're sort of plummeted in in their real value international student fees is making all kinds of trouble you know at, at some point um you know either the government and ukri together probably in, you know and with the sector as well need to seriously think about how can we fully fund the research that we want our universities and research institutes to do nicola i mean you you've come to academic research later on in your career 
would you do you look at that do you look at your experience there and think you know you could have you could have made it as a um as an academic as a researcher from the start would you advise other people attempt to oh, i don't think i don't think i could have done it or would have done it or wanted to have done it but that's very personal i mean i still think it's an exceptionally exciting it can be an exceptionally exciting career and um i hope this sort of trend these messages can be resolved and it doesn't put people off i mean actually there's no indication that it is but i suppose the danger is it puts the wrong sort of people off people who are concerned about money and security um and feel vulnerable uh, may choose not to go into research careers where it's more confident confident people do i mean there's already a trend in that direction anyway so i suppose the concern is that that will skew further um, and that would be a hugely unhelpful and now it's time for the hidden history of higher education with mike ratcliffe what is it that has made england uh, and it's England rather than Scotland, uh, adopt this particular residential model. Now, obviously, this is deep in our history, um, but and, and most of it is just an accident, but it becomes an accident that becomes enshrined in policy. Oxford and Cambridge start off on their course to becoming the great universities that they are um, by wanting to be quite a long way away from the king and his courts and the bishop and their authority. So they're quite happy being in small towns, uh, relatively well connected, but not so connected so that the person in charge of them can be be there all the time. So that's a benefit to both those two universities and a benefit that they're not in a major city. Now, England only has one major city, but neither of those two universities are in London. Um, and it's quite clear that, that that's that's fine. So they set off in that model. And therefore, it's quite clear that if they are national universities, and as we've discussed before, they're quite good at killing off other people's attempts to have universities, um, then Everyone has to travel to those universities and they set up a term system so that you're only there for eight weeks and then you can go home again. And uh, whether or not we believe that people really went home in the summer to do the harvest. But the, the, the time you were there, you were in residence, um, either uh, in one of the colleges or in a hall. And therefore you, you had a, a kind of wraparound experience in terms of somebody looking after you the whole time. And that was part of the education that was on offer. So we ended up with this situation. So that's that's a good thing. And that provides quite a strong uh, basis for uh, continuing education. Now, the commuter universities that come in, in the uh, 19th century push against that. Places like UCL and later uh, Manchester and Leeds and Liverpool. Uh, they might have small numbers of halls of residence, but they generally uh, most of their students are commuting. Most of their students are coming in every day. But by the time we get after the... Um, First World War, there are two new bodies with a view on how higher education should be best organised. The new University Grants Committee um, is con um, constructed of, of uh, the great and the good who come together and, and think deep thoughts about how higher education should best be organised. They think residence is, is the best way of organising a higher education institution. And the other new body that has a view on these things is the National Union of Students. And it's the National Union of Students who also makes quite a lot of the running on residential life is best. And there are lots of reports written and, and snarky books about how the life of the commuting student is, is nothing like the life of the residential student. The residential student can go to debates and have dinners and, and live that kind of much broader, richer life. Uh, and lots of reports saying how sad it is um, that uh, commuting students don't get to do that. 
And this is put into play in, in UGC action. The only university that UGC allowed to become a university between the wars is Reading. Reading has a very firm commitment to residence. Uh, it's much more unlike any of the other university colleges. It's very committed. Uh, it's, it's sponsored by Oxford. It's very committed to having a residential experience. And so it's the only one that gets through. So we get to the 50s. Uh, we're dealing with expansion of higher education. And there's a clear attempt to say the residential model is much better. Keel has started off on a residential model, but there's a, a, a grand committee uh, chaired by Niblet uh, that comes together and says, look, this is this is where we should be going. We want to avoid the nine to five mentality, which is the great enemy of university education. Um, and therefore, the UGC committed to provide capital funds to build residences. So this is great because, of course, um, one of the things it tried to do was set out clear specifications. You couldn't build grander halls of residence uh, than the UGC would give you money for. You had to build them. So if you um, spend your time uh, trolling around the country going to 1950s and 60s halls of residence, you will find the square meterage is pretty much the same everywhere you go. The same little basin in the corner of the room, uh, the same wardrobe, uh, the same vanishingly small bed on which to sleep. You can't build bigger than the UGC will give you money for, even if you've actually got the cash to do it. So there's a, a, a grand specification. And this comes from a very egalitarian sense. Everyone gets the same kind of accommodation. And those universities that um, have got different kinds of accommodation have to deal with this. One of the reasons that some of those universities got great accommodation is that uh, in the 17th and 18th century, uh, one of the ways Oxford and Cambridge tried to attract better off students was by building small palaces for them to live in. So if you go around and you look at some of the great buildings that you know, we all buy postcards of, it's because they built buildings to look like the palaces uh, and great country houses that they, these uh, uh, sons of the gentry had come out of. And so they built them to make you know, very familiar, you know, the same kind of panelling, the same kind of high rooms, the same kind of you know, um, classical architecture. But there's a sense that we should have this kind of utilitarian uh, view as we go forward. So we then obviously have uh, the UGC funding these kinds of things. Uh, eventually, when the sector comes together, the polytechnics have a great rush to try and deal with building um, uh, residences, um, as many of which now have to come off uh, the balance sheet because Hefke decides we're not building residences. Mostly, I assume, because um, there's no way they could have afforded to pay for the polytechnics to have all of this stuff and to balance out the sector, and therefore they all come off balance sheet. Now, that's probably a progenitor of another problem, uh, as now we have all these accommodation blocks off residence. We, you know, financing has become problematic. The other thing that's, of course, allowed to happen now is that people are now back in the business, just as they were in the 18th century, of building luxury accommodation blocks. So now we have a wonderful tradition uh, re starting again Again, that just as um, uh, Dean Aldrich built grand blocks for people uh, to come to Oxford, now they're building grand blocks for people to go to, to London and, and live in swanky things with cinemas and gyms and swimming pools and concierge services and all the rest of these kind of things. So we're, we're kind of back where we were before. So um, Howard Silver wrote about this uh, before um, this kind of span off where people were still using PFI rather than just completely outsourcing it. And he was concerned that we're abandoning a tradition of residences, that we no longer see them in an educational context only as essential for competitive recruitment. And he wrote that in 2007. And I think 
that's kind of where we are now. So the concern about we've ended up with this residential model, um, but we probably let slip the controls that we once had over it. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. There's been a new report out from the International Higher Education Commission about UK students and overseas study. Nicola, walk us through that, please. Yes. So this is the um, International Higher Education Committee, which is commission, which is the group chaired by um, Chris Skidmore, former higher education minister, which is looking to develop a new international education strategy. So they've published this report, which is this week, which is called Is the UK Developing Global Mindsets, which is about um, this concept of internationalization at home and that um, is about integrating international perspectives into the domestic university agenda so looking at ways of ensuring that the domestic campus and curricular and non-curricular activities are um, expose students to international skills and competences and so on Um, and um, I mean they note the point that um, previous and more traditional internationalization agendas of, of encouraging students to travel abroad um, tended to favour students from more privileged backgrounds um, because if you're, wor- if you're working or you have caring responsibilities, you can't travel abroad. So one of the um, advantages of internationalisation at home is it's far more inclusive and it can affect all students. So what's interesting about this report is, or well, a number of things, but firstly, they note the um, very strong headwinds against um, the more traditional forms of student mobility. Um, very significant drop in domestic students studying abroad, uh, partly due to COVID, um, partly due to the um, ending of our participation in Erasmus. Um, it notes the corresponding decline in students on exchange schemes studying here for the same reasons. Um, huge decline in modern foreign languages, which is just it, it just terrible. It goes mm. on and on and on. Um, concerns about climate change, which clearly a factor. And then the report has l- some really good examples of what internationalization at home looks like. So what universities are doing across the piece, actually, to try and ensure that there's more international elements in their teaching and extracurricular activities, virtual international classrooms, um, provision of modern foreign languages for students. Uh, and, and then it finishes with a set of recommendations. Um, quite a lot on on ensuring there's better data to evidence internationalization at home. They want to create an internationalization at home league table, which I thought was interesting, and recommendations about how to incentivize universities and academics to engage with this agenda. So it's, a, it's an interesting report. It's a really good report. It's just one thing that I just was lurking in my mind as I read it is that um, 
are we should we be um giving up on our efforts to get students to travel abroad I, I i mean it's not that the report is saying that but um it seems to me that we need to be careful to make sure that internalization internationalization at home doesn't have that effect because virtual classrooms are brilliant but it's just not the same as students traveling abroad and i think um we need to not lose sight of the importance of that mm. function. Um, so it's not either or; it's and and. In fascinating, fascinating, um, Andrew. I, I wonder. I wonder if this kind of rings true just in in your university about you know the, the things report saying about um, you know the underreporting of it. Um, you know how it's how it's falling away because of the, you know various things that, that Nicholas set out. I, I think in terms of the student mobility question. It's one of those vexing issues where it seems to be a particularly English-speaking nation disease. You see the same thing in the United States and in Canada, perhaps a bit less so in Australia, where students from English-speaking nations are less inclined to have international experiences or go on exchanges. Um, and in the report does talk on, as Nicholas already highlighted, the, the need to support modern language acquisition. I think that the, the sad reality is that by the time you get to university, it, that being able to become functionally bilingual or, or at least able to, to get by in, in another country begins, is already decreased significantly. And it really does need a, a push at, at a lower educational level. But I appreciate, as the report highlights, that that, that, is, an, that is an issue and something that needs to be dealt with. I think the under on the under reporting question, there are obviously a lot of international collaborations that take place between between universities, either at an individual academic level or or at a program level. And part of the challenge for universities, and, and certainly for um, a university like mine, is capturing all of those to understand what it is that we are doing and how that either might be replicated across the institution or how it could be leveraged to mean more for both the students and the and the staff involved as well as the local community for for that matter um so part of i think part of the challenge for institutions is to gather up all of that good practice that's already taking place so that we understand just how far of a reach we've got so that there's a more deliberate um strategy around it it's michael it's hard not to read this as kind of part of you know our the, the UK's decline in the world, isn't it? I mean, don't universities have a have a have a kind of their instinct is to is to is to engage with as much global activity as they as they can, isn't it? But at the same time, these policy pressures and funding and everything else kind of pushes pushes against. Yeah, I think I think that is true. There's you know there isn't really any policy mechanism at the moment that's particularly encouraging universities to do um, you know student outward mobility and and even student in short term or you know sort of term length. Um, it, inward mobility i mean so there's turing which is an interesting one because you know it has really been developed as a very clear contrast to erasmus i think it's becoming clear that it's it's much smaller in ambition really you know for all that the government says it's sort of doing similar things um but you know i think the really interesting thing about turing which you all you see in lots of pockets of of the kind of he and research landscape is just how short term it is right it's a yearly thing where institutions bid for funding and and they're never really sure if they're going to get it students don't know whether their bids will be successful you know whether their programs will go ahead until quite last minute there's also been loads of delays with capita running it which is you know in theory a separate issue you know but that sort of short-termism around international um, mobility means it's really hard to be strategic 
right? In the way that this this um, you know potential future strategy um, really wants you, you you need that longer term set of of policy drivers to sort of say, okay, we're actually going to get you know home students to do certain things. Um, you know, quite how much the government's ever really going to get on board with this sort of internationalization at home. And I know they're sort of hoping to make a new international education strategy, but I, I feel like it's unlikely the government is ever going to be sort of putting incentives in place or funding in place for universities to do things like do more modern foreign languages. It just feels so different from where, where things are at the moment. But, it, you know, this could become a sort of sector, um, a sector-led initiative. And it would be, it's, it's interesting to see where this strategy is going. And at the risk of saying something that would be wildly inappropriate, like obviously part of part of this is the presence of, of international students on UK university campuses. N- nothing can create as great a contact for British students and international students coming here and studying studying here. Um, removing international students from net migration targets would be a start, and helping helping encourage institutions to to continue to grow our, our overseas student populations. Yeah, I mean that that is true, and I think the report looks at this question of like international diversity, saying that you know UK students are not getting the same diversity they used to because there's less Erasmus students coming. You know, obviously there's a there's a risk of that sounding a bit patronising and saying you know you know the international student numbers are growing. Do we is it there really something so special about European students. But on the other hand, I do think there is a real case to be made for a proper measure or a proper, you know, dive into the data on how actually internationally diverse are our universities and, and especially by subject levels. Because, you know, for for the benefit of international students more than anyone, you know, there's so many stories and anecdotes of international students thinking they will have a very what they see as a very international experience and finding that their their courses especially at postgraduate level, are dominated by one nationality, you know, their nationality, and they're not really interacting with home students or a variety of other international students. Um, so, yeah, I, I definitely agree with the need for a, sort of a closer look at the data and that and not simplistically saying, you know, look how many international students we've got, which is what some of the kind of uh, league tables and things do. Um, you know, more thinking, OK, what's, what's the real spread at subject level? to ensure that everyone's having this this really important experience of meeting people from all over the world. So that's about it for this week. Remember to dig a bit deeper into anything we discussed today. You'll find links in the show notes on wonky.com. Don't forget, you can get the latest show automatically when it's out. Just search for The Wonky Show wherever you get your podcasts. And to find out about how we can keep you and where you work ahead of everything that's going on in UKHE, do head to the site and click subscriptions. So thanks very much to Nicola, Andrew and Michael, who also makes the show happen behind the scenes. We'll be back next week. Jim will be here. Until then, stay wonky. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.